Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig deeper into Asia and the Pacific's public policy challenges. I'm Martin Pierce. Today on the pod, we're looking at how to bridge the gap between science, economics and public policy. We'll be taking a look at how to make public policy which is better informed by evidence from science and economics, what researchers need to do to have a stronger voice and bigger say in policy formulation and how to get policymakers and academics to talk the same language. Helping me analyse these issues are three experts who recently took part in a policy forum event at Crawford School of Public Policy, which was titled Bridging Science, Economics and Policy Silos. The event featured a broad range of experts, including a panel of chief scientists from around the world. You can read a number of pieces written by the experts who took part in the event on Policy Forum. There are links in the description of this podcast. The expert panel for today's podcast is Professor Karen Hussey. Karen is the Deputy Director at the Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland. She trained as a political scientist and economist and has a particular interest in public policy relating to sustainable development. Professor Kathleen Sigerson is from the University of Connecticut. Kathleen's research is focused on the incentive effects of environmental policy. She's a fellow of both the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists and the American Agricultural Economics Association. Our third panellist is Susie Kerr. Susie is a senior fellow at Motu Economic and Public Policy Research, a non-profit research institute in New Zealand. Susie is also an adjunct professor at Victoria University. Susie, Kathleen and Karen all have articles on Policy Forum and they are all well worth a read. But for now, here's that discussion. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so Karen, Kathleen and Susie, thank you for joining Policy Forum Pod. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're talking today about bridging the gap between science and policy. And I want to start with a question to Susie. Susie, you spoke about how these two groups of scientists and researchers on the one hand and policymakers on the other are often comprised of two fundamentally different types of people. What are the main differences between each group as far as the people are concerned? And why is that a challenge for effective policymaking? The way I talked about the differences was very much in terms of stereotypes, but as always, stereotypes have some reality in them. Um, So researchers have to be people who are very obsessive about what they're doing. To do really good research, you have to be like that. They are people who spend a lot of time thinking deeply, and so they tend to be people who like to be on their own, um, and possibly that's associated with not having terrifically good social skills. And... In contrast, policy people tend to work in teams. That's the way policy is generated. They are very responsive to the people um, in their departments who they're working for and and for ministers and policy processes. And and they have tight timelines. And those are very different things. 
And that makes it difficult because if they don't understand those differences, then it can cause conflict. If they do, they appreciate that if you're a policymaker, the researcher is the person who can back you up, who has time to think deeply because you don't, and that's a strength. And from the researcher point of view, the policymaker is the person who can actually be there on the spot and convey your knowledge into the policy process at the right moment, and you don't have to talk to all those people. We'll get on to talking about you know those differences and how to broach some of those. But one thing I did want to ask was around the world, there are many examples of bad policy resulting from this, a disconnect between policymakers and the scientific community. Uh, and I want to talk about one issue that you all spoke about, which is probably the most notorious and serious example of this disconnect, and that issue is climate change. Uh, what lessons can we learn from the climate change debate about bridging the gap between science and policy. I'll start with you, Kathleen. Well, I think one thing that it's really important to recognize, and I tried to emphasize this in my talk, was that um, policy is comprised of two things. One is information knowledge, and the other are values. And unfortunately, it's also human nature that your values tend to influence how you interpret information or the way in which you think about information that's presented to you, scientific information in particular. And so I think it's really unfortunate, but in the context of climate change, it's a context where we really do have people who are interpreting information very much through the lens of the values that they bring to the table. And that makes it very difficult. Um, and so one of the things that that's important is to recognize that and to try to see whether or not one can um, try to overcome that in some sense um, so that we can have a common understanding of the knowledge base and the scientific base. And then based on that, we can still make different um, have, have different recommendations about what policy ought to be. But at least we have some common understanding of the, um, of the information, the scientific basis, and then it's the value systems that perhaps are leading to the differences of opinions about what ought to be done. Uh, Karen and Susie, did you want to add anything further to that? I mean, what, are there any other uh, lessons that we can learn from the climate change debate about bridging the gap between science and policy? Well, I think one of the things I'd, I'd say, just building on both Susie and Kathy's comments, is that uh, on Susie's first, policymakers and scientists have one very strong thing in common, which is that they're both, I think, driven by the desire to make the world a better place. And how they interpret that can be quite different. And Susie talked this morning about timeframes and, and outcomes and, all the, and, and other different ways of, of measuring what we do. But if you take climate change as an example, the scientists are doing science and they're very clearly articulating to to anybody who listen, that if we don't take climate change seriously, we're going to have problems. So something must be done. Policymakers, too, are listening to that information, and they're saying, my goodness, this really is a terrible problem, and if we don't do something, then, then the world is going to look very different. But there's a very significant difference, then, in what they do with that information, psychologically. Policymakers have political masters, and those political masters speak for the people. And at the end of the day, when we think about climate change science, it's not about science. It's about people. It's about saying that if we're to address climate change and avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we're actually talking about human systems and processes that need to change. That means there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. And what policymakers are in the business of doing, which I don't think scientists are in the business of doing, because frankly that's not part of their job, is to think how do we actually navigate our way through to a decarbonised economy in such a way as we, we limit 
the negative fallout for populations. Because there will be people who are in fossil fuel heavy industries now who frankly are looking at this as a, as a debate and they're saying, well, this is, goodness me, you're talking about my livelihood. You're talking about my life. You're talking about things that are very clear to me. And it's not a graph on a page for them. It's very real. And that's not to say that scientists don't understand that. But it's that once they've handed on the science, it's up to the policymakers and the politicians and the public to be able to, to shift the world views that are out there to be able to, to make that transition possible. Do scientists have any responsibility in shifting those views? I think they do. But, but one of the things that climate change has told us over the last three or four decades is that telling people what they don't want to hear doesn't work. Right? So, so telling people in finer and finer levels of detail how horrible the world is going to look if we don't address climate change just has people switch off. Right? Nobody actually wants to know that. So what you have to do from the scientific side of things is change your communication. They started, we, the Academy, started to do that about 15 years ago when we started to talk about the economic costs of not doing something. And then you start to talk about the back pocket. But my view, and I talked about this morning, this this morning, is that, that Andrew Hoffman's um, book about climate change being about culture, I think is spot on. It's, it's not about science, it's not even about economics, it's about cultural shifts. And scientists, I think, have a responsibility to be able to understand that. It'll certainly make them a lot less, fr- less frustrated, but so too it might make them more effective. I, I agree with all of that. I think we've made a terrible mistake in the past with climate change communication. The message is all about fear and it makes people feel incredibly powerless. And I agree that this fundamentally, in the long term, it's an issue of culture. We can't create regulations that last for a thousand years, and we just can't do that. Um, it just has to become something that, why would you burn coal? And that's it. So it's part, part technology and part culture, so a mixture of things there. Um, but I think that the scientists, we have a responsibility to also point out things that people can do. We have a tendency to propose particular solutions and pose them as the solution or very clear solutions and that or to express things in very complex ways and it is a complex problem but that leaves people thinking they can't do anything they can't understand it they either believe or they don't believe and and then they don't do anything at all where actually of course there's lots of things that everyone can do um, particularly when you think of it as culture change and I can't create some new technology because I'm not a technology whiz, but I can talk to people about climate change and, and shift the, the conversations that I'm engaged with, and, but that most people wouldn't think about doing that. In your presentations this morning, you all highlighted several tools and strategies that can help bridge the gap between science and policy. I want to ask about just one from each of you, and I'll start with you, Karen. You highlight the importance of what you call narratives in determining public policy. Why is it important for scientists and others seeking to shape public policy to understand political narratives? Because it's the narrative that is formed around a policy problem that will either bring people with you or leave them behind. And the narrative reflects the political realities of the day. So we hear all the time new terms or expressions emerge. And and if you're not actually attuned to them, you don't know what it means. So last year, the narrative was all about Australia being an exciting country and innovation was the future. It didn't go anywhere because no one really understood it. Uh, Years before that, we talked about productivity. 
right? Everything was about whether or not we were going to be able to increase productivity. And again, this came from from the academic community, but it spoke to a particular political angle um, that the then government wanted to pursue. So from the academy, we need to understand policy narratives because it'll either make or break our capacity to interject in the policymaking process. If we're talking a language that doesn't resonate with one or other of the dominant policy narratives, we won't be listened to. And it's a brutal reality. It, it's very quick for, for people to sort of downplay that and say, oh, you mean you've got to be talking about jobs? It's all about jobs and regional security. Well, yes, it is. But again, why are we talking about jobs and regional security? We're talking about people being scared and fearful. And so we have to be able to engage in that dialogue. And the narrative is what, if you like, demarcates that dialogue. How do um, scientists go about keeping up, keeping up with what these narratives are? What, what, do you, what, what would you suggest? Is it about watching and reading the news? Is it about thinking more in Martin, the, about I'm their so research? Martin, I'm so pleased you asked me that um, because I have this conversation quite a lot with my PhD students and indeed with, with scientists more generally. Um, scientists have to read something other than their own work and the work of their colleagues. They have to be reading the, ma- the main broadsheets. They can't be snobby about it. I've heard people say, well, good goodness me, you can't read The Australian? Well, of course you read The Australian. That's what everybody else is reading. That's how you understand what the pulse of the people is. Um, and the idea that we can just stay in the academy and read our learned uh, journal articles and, um, and somehow or other disengage from the public uh, is only going to perpetuate the problem that we find ourselves in. So we have to read the paper. We have to read The Economist. We have to read widely not because we necessarily want to agree with any of it, but simply so we can understand what those narratives are that are out there. Uh, a lot of it will, will make you despair, uh, but it's important that we do it. Kathleen, in, um, in your presentation, you spoke about using the field of economics as a toolkit for framing public policy debates. What does economics have to offer us in terms of bridging the gap between science and policy? Well, I think that one of the ways that we see policy debates playing out is in a us versus them kind of scenario where one side, whether it's the business community, takes one position and the environmental community takes another position. And both of them uh, look at things only from their own perspective in some sense without really recognizing the validity of the concerns on the other side. And I think what economics has to offer is a more kind of integrated, if you will, approach or view of the of the public policy problem as a whole, recognizing that when we think about social well-being, social welfare for a society, it includes both the people who work in the coal industry as well as the people who are likely to suffer the consequences of climate change. And so ultimately, economics is about identifying the trade-offs that are involved and looking for ways to minimize those trade-offs. You're not going to eliminate them necessarily. They'll be there, but you can look for ways to to minimize them and strategies for trying to offset the negative impacts that one or the other would face depending upon the direction that you go. So I think that economics has a focus on evaluating trade-offs and about balancing competing kinds of objectives or goals from competing groups within society. And so recognizing, I use the example in my comments, recognizing that the optimal amount of 
emissions reduction is not zero, but it's not 100% either. It's something in between. And so the question is, how, where is it in between? And that's a function of how we, are, you know, how we would have to and how we would be willing to balance those competing um, needs. So I think that economics brings a way of thinking about problems that is useful for trying to bring sides together and recognize these, uh, how the competing goals of different groups do in fact compete, but also how they can be brought together and perhaps um, some of the concerns mitigated somewhat. First, by recognizing them, they need to be recognized by the different sides before they can, we can work toward trying to minimize those impacts. And we've talked a lot today about the gap between science and policy. Is there a gap between economics and science? I think that economists are social scientists, but every economist would say I'm not a biophysical scientist. So for example, in my case, if I talk about climate change, I would never say that I'm an expert on the science of climate change, because I'm certainly not. And so economists need to use the input from the biophysical scientists in order to inform their discussion about what the different trade-offs would be under different kinds of policy options. So I think that Economists can, in some sense, integrate information from the biophysical sciences, but also from the humanities, because that informs how people make decisions. There's a growing field within economics called behavioral economics that now recognizes that many of the decisions that individuals make are not simply based on the rational economic approach that has been historically the bedrock of of neoclassical economics. So many of the things that, that Karen mentioned today and that some other people mentioned about fear and the other kinds of motivations that enter into people's actual behavior and decisions, those are things that economists need to recognize and incorporate and have are doing a better job of that, but haven't um, historically have been perhaps a bit naive in terms of that side of the equation, I would say. Can I add to that? I guess my whole career has sort of been working with scientists on integrated issues. And and I think we're, we're doing better than we were 20 years ago, but I think there's still a lot of challenges between the two, um, and both sides have some responsibility for this. I think all experts have to be really aware of where the edges of their expertise are, and there's this tendency for hubris, I'm really good at this thing, to think that, oh, I can do their thing as well, and not understanding that you actually need to work with them rather than just know taking one article out of their literature and, and pretending that you're an expert um, so that and that's a human behavior thing we need to behave in different ways I find still that scientists have incredibly little understanding and obviously there are exceptions there are people who are incredibly good at going across but your average scientist has thinks that um, economics is accounting um, or business one or the other um, but also doesn't realize that uh, doesn't think that policy is something you could do research on. They think that it's just politics. You go from climate science directly into political judgments, and there's nothing in, in the middle, for example. And that's that's a space where we have really a lot of work to do, because. And but I, I admit that the problem is is in both directions. And could I just add one thing to that? Because I think it's a really important point. I think that there's a difference between doing policy research and making policy recommendations. And that's something that often the scientific community doesn't understand. They think as soon as it's anything relating to carbon taxes or emissions trading or anything, you've, you've moved into the realm of policy recommendations. And many um, scientific agencies do not want to do that. And so they stop short of in 
engaging in or embracing any kind of social science research that's related to some of those policy instruments. Mm. I, I might weigh in though as well and just and just say that the nature of the way you become a scientist or a social scientist, uh, you, you go through fairly rigorous training. And part of that training is to learn the language of your discipline. Um, and uh, I, I was very fortunate I did political science and economics. Uh, and it didn't take me too long at all to realize that uh, I wasn't actually terribly good at the language of economics. And I find um, the vast majority of economists are very good at communicating with you. But you, they can put up a wall of their lingua franca, if you like, where they talk about marginal abate and, and, and what's the cost curve. And, and, and I can follow it, thankfully, but I can only imagine that there are scientists who don't. Um, and similarly, you can have conversations with scientists where if you ask them the most simple questions, what do you do? What's your research on? You can be 15 minutes into a conversation before you have any idea what it is. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. They're talking about and, and this is because we're trained by definition, as Susie said, we are trained to be narrow and deep in our understanding of, of an issue. And in order for us to understand that issue, we actually have to have a common language amongst our peers. It is an enormous effort then to come out the other end of that process and say, OK, now I'm going to be able to communicate all of that richness in a way that your average man on the street can understand. And it's a skill that very few people have. Um, so I think it lends itself to this problem of bridging that divide. On that subject, are our universities actually doing enough to equip our scientists or economists with the skills to be able to talk in that kind of language? Um, I think they are. Uh, well, let me put it this way. They're starting to. Um, and they've been, they've been pushed into it kissing, ki- kissing, <laughs> kicking, I should say, kicking <laughs> and screaming. Uh, in Australia, we have the, obviously the Australian Research Council. And one of the things that the ARC has started to push is the idea that, that the academy be able to explain what the economic and or social impact of their research is. Um, and you, you find that there are different types of responses. Uh, there are some researchers who go, well, my God, why should I have to do that? Uh, just let me get on with the science. Right? What I'm doing is good work and you don't need to know why. Um, and there's this enormous disconnect between the fact that they're paid by the public purse and so perhaps they should have to explain how this is beneficial to the public. The other uh, middle sort of section of researchers are quite happy to do it, but they're completely incapable of being able to do it. And that's where universities are now starting to provide training. And then there's the, the others up the other end who are actually quite skilled at being able to communicate their science. And they're being used increasingly as brokers. Um, and I think there's very little you can do with that that first category so just let them do it they're as Susie said they're probably the types of people who are doing extraordinary research and they should just be left to it 
but you need to focus on the training in the second and the brokerage and enabling roles um, of the third category that I spoke to. Susie, you spoke about how the New Zealand government is making use of dialogues between policymakers and scientists. Can you tell us some more about these dialogues? I mean, what in your view makes them effective tools for policymaking? I should emphasise that the sort of dialogues I'm talking about are not created by the government. So it's something that um, I think now they are happy that are happening, but the motivation and the initiative actually came outside of government from academia because we could see these long-term issues that never got discussed deeply and that the only times you got to discuss them were in these fraught highly pressured, highly political environments. And so the conversations went round and round and just got politicised. So um, what we try to do is spot issues which would really benefit from some really deep discussion among scientists of different disciplines, um, industry, NGOs um, and government departments where we think that potentially if they could just talk to each other, they would actually find that they can either find solutions that they hadn't thought of or they can actually find that they agree mostly and then they can start having much more constructive conversations, work out what they do agree on and what they don't agree on because otherwise you end up with these conversations that are just confused and particularly on complex issues like climate change. So we've tried to pick topics either where um, the conversation just hasn't even started. So agricultural emissions was something that nobody in the world has really talked about. Um, and so we thought it would be worth trying to work out at least what the questions are. Um, and so we, for that one, um, which was a particularly difficult one because there wasn't a lot of research to draw on, we brought together a, about four farmers from different sort of parts of the farming community, chosen for being intelligent, thoughtful, um, good communicators, Um, Also farming industry and lobby groups, industry groups, government um, Māori groups because a lot of land is Māori land um, and we involve them in all processes in New Zealand Um, and and also the scientists. So we got a few of the scientists um, involved in various roles providing us with input but also secretly exposing them to these broader points of view because they're the ones who are actually called on to communicate a lot. And if they can be slightly more alert to the issues, they're going to be much more useful. And and these are people who I'm still collaborating with now. So these are long-term collaborations that we've built up. And and I've learned a lot from them. Um, And I'm still not an expert. You know, whenever I have a deep cow question, I now know who to call. (laughs) And I check, always confirm. I think I know, but I just confirm to make sure I've really got it right. And... And but those networks of knowledge are just so fantastic, and and the relationships that underpin them. It's about relationships between specific named individuals, and you can laugh with each other, and you learn all sorts of things about people who become human. And I work with these sorts of ideas a lot internationally now. Um, so we're designing an emissions trading system for Colombia, working with lots of different people there, and we try to do the same thing: make the people people. We're working by video conference, so a lot of these people you need to even meet, but you begin to learn about who they are and what's going on in their lives, and it becomes something where you have a shared personal connection to them, and you know and you trust that they're all trying to solve the same problem, and that just transforms the way that you work together, and I hope that these are people I'm going to work with for the next 20 years, and 
and I'll trust them and, and know them. And when I call, they answer. And you know, when they call me, I, I help. So that people talk so much about institutional stuff, but it, I think it's all about people. I mean, you talked there about uh, about doing this around the idea of agricultural emissions and there not being much work in that space already. In terms of establishing these types of dialogues, is staying ahead of the curve and predicting what are likely to be an issues an important factor in yeah. that before it starts to get too political? Absolutely. I mean, the best thing to do is to do it before it's even hit the political um, space. We were really lucky. Um, and this is difficult to do because, of course, the funding comes when it becomes a crisis. That's when people want to fund it, and by then it's way too late. So we were very lucky with the very first dialogue we ever did was with freshwater management in Lake Rotorua. And, and I happened to have quite a close connection with um, some senior people at Ministry for Environment, and they moved, and the, this particular man moved to um, that particular region that was dealing with that problem, and he really helped us to get funding to do this program years before it took off. And so we had the time to work with the um, hydrologists um, in the catchment, um, and to work with develop relationships with local farmers and people. And before it was political, and and now they've got a regulation. What are we up? Ten years later, and these are not rapid experiences, uh, and it's not exactly what we all planned, but we could actually have real conversations, and the policymakers in the regional council said that as a result of that process, all their following conversations were much easier. They had no question about whether there was an issue or whether it needed to be dealt with, and they even had some understanding of the potential tools that were available. And this is a this is an area where the potential cost to individual farmers are huge. So there's really a lot personally at stake for particular families, and and yet they were still able to work through it to a solution. It's Probably not perfect, but how would we know what was perfect? The notion of dialogue strikes me as quite important because, of course, it's a two-way flow of communication. Uh, and I think quite often we can look at good policy ideas and assume perhaps pessimistically that uh, they'll always be powerless against whatever political winds happen to be blowing. Um, I want to hear from Karen on this because, Karen, you made the point that there is actually a politics-policy continuum and that it's too simplistic to say it only goes one direction. Well, I think the first thing I'd say in response to that is that, that politicians very often come and go, but the public, public service is there to stay, and they may go from one position to another. But actually, in, in countries uh, like Australia and New Zealand, my goodness, it's, it's a small pond. Um, and I can't speak for the United States, but I imagine that the, the political and policy elites in Washington until very recently were pretty tight too. Uh, perhaps even tighter now. Um, they're busy looking for jobs. Um, but uh, in terms of the, the political policy continuum, this is the idea that, that, yes, public policy reflects social values, and those social values are debated in the political um, sphere. There are always, though, policies being made, implemented, revised, redesigned, re-implemented, rethought in the background, Right. So, so while we might be talking about negative gearing one week and climate change the next week, actually there's an entire public policy apparatus that is keeping the country going. And it's, it's got the power to be able to do things iteratively better. So the, the view that I was putting forward this morning was that 
public policy should always reflect what's happening in politics because public policy gives effect to, to, to the contestation of social values. Fine. But we're not always debating everything all the time. And so there is a very powerful opportunity for the public service and the very learned characters within the public service and those around it that, that endeavour to uh, influence it to be able to put forward policy ideas that might go forward under the radar, for example, or that are designed so well and implemented so well that they're actually able to then um, kick on to other policy ideas that might emerge from them. So it's the idea that, yes, you have politics driving a policy agenda, but so too you can have very, very good public policy that is in itself driving forward better policy design, implementation, and therefore outcomes. Um, and, and that's where people like me who look at policy studies uh, tend to focus. And, and pol- politicians get their ideas from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I can't quote the quote, but it's the, the, the sort of thing about every politician's idea is, every t- politician is slave to some defunct economist. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea is probably from something they read a long time ago. And, and I think Peter Gluckman talked about mm-hmm. this, that... No, you don't want to have hubris. What you really want is the politician comes out with your idea as their idea. Mm-hmm. And ideally, they even forget it was your idea. And, and they feel totally attached to it. And if you're involved in those conversations, those long-term, continuous conversations, at some point you hear it coming back again. If it was a good idea, and if it was a bad idea, hopefully it will float away and never be heard of again. But the good idea is gradually the language just shifts and you find that actually everyone's talking about what you were trying to say and you feel less useless. And it's harder and harder in, the, in, in this day and age where we have so much information being bombarded at us and particularly with politicians. I think that's where the onus is on us and people within the political and the policy classes to have those enduring trusted relationships because you do need to be able to wade your way through this enormous mass of information. And you're only going to be able to do that if you have people who you trust saying, no, no, ignore that. That's absolute rubbish. It came from, you know, this vested interest or that vested interest and it was wrapped up as a think tank. What you want is to be able to call people and say, right, these are the things I'm being exposed to. Where, dear trusted friend, do you think I should be focusing my attention? A final question to all of you. Um, We're living in fairly extraordinary political times. We've got Britain heading towards a departure from the European Union, Donald Trump as President of the United States. Many people would point to these events as examples of populist politics triumphing over good policy and evidence-based research. When you look ahead, are you optimistic for the ability of scientific knowledge to cut through and help deliver good policy? Kathleen, perhaps I could start with you. Well, that's an interesting question in this day and age of Donald Trump. Um, I think that in some sense, what's happening in the U.S. is so extreme that it is perhaps opening people's eyes in a way that they might not have paid much attention to before. So maybe that is some cause for, for ultimate optimism after an initial stage of extreme pessimism, which I think is the part 
the stage that we're in right now. I mean, clearly there is um, great concern, not only within the federal government, say the U.S. EPA, but just more generally within the scientific community in the United States. So the question is, how long will this last, or will there be a sufficient backlash against this that in the end things will be even better in terms of the the uh, role that science plays. But I think that, um, so, so maybe it's a short-term, long-term kind of thing. The other thing is that, and I, and I mentioned this this morning, I think it's really important to recognize is that, the, in my mind, one shining uh, light, if you will, in what's been happening politically in the U.S. is that, not universally, but for a large, to a large extent, the younger generation is not part of <laughs> the... Um, <clears throat> kinds of support that Trump was seeing. And so, again, that suggests that maybe in the long run, we'll have a very different dynamic. One can only hope. Susie, what about you? Are you an optimist? Uh, I think I would agree with um, Kathy that in the short run, obviously, things are very messy. Um, but in the long run, this could be a sort of a revolution. And revolutions are always messy in the short run. But I think there's a legitimate concern about the um, roles of experts and people becoming too arrogant about what they know and what the solutions are when the problems we have today are not those sort of problems anymore. And some of the problems we had 30 years ago, you could solve using engineering and basic economics. It was pretty obvious what to do. It's not obvious what the solutions are to a lot of the things that we face today. And the scientists, and I would include you know, economists among that, haven't necessarily come to terms with that. That if, if we can learn that and, and adjust the way we deal with science, that would be a hugely valuable thing. And I think there's also a justifiable revolution against elites in, in various countries. And again, if our lesson is ju- if, if what we take away is that there's a whole lot of populace out there and we need to keep them down, we've totally missed the point. But if we actually say, actually, there is an issue here, there's a problem, and maybe I'm a big fan of going small, which you know would make sense given that I'm a New Zealander. Maybe what we'll end up is with much more state power and much more diverse policies and less of people thinking we just need to get bigger and we've opposed the solution on everybody. And that might be just a much more stable thing, dealing with something like climate change, which is we don't know what to do and we would be stupid to all do the same thing in response. Because if it's right, that's great, but chances are it's not, and then we're really in deep trouble. What about you, you, Karen? I can see you're thinking about whether you're optimistic or not. Um, Well, look, I think the last 12 months has been a real wake-up call for an awful lot of people, including those of us that that would be in in the research community. Um, We didn't see it coming. Uh, As a political scientist, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable to me that, that we all sat on our couches looking at Brexit going, well, of course it won't happen. It would be silly if it were to happen. That's a silly thing for them to vote for. Um, and yet they did. Similarly with Trump, we all sat there saying, well, this is a great spectacle, but sen- common sense will prevail and it won't happen. Um, I'm probably less optimistic than, than Cathy and Susie in the sense that I don't think we have a keen understanding of history and how easy it is to go from... Uh, you know, from from disbelief and a shock like we've had in terms of Trump to out-and-out war. These things can happen incredibly quickly um, and we sleepwalk into them. 
there are clearly people talking about analogies with the 1930s and Hitler and um, you know, and then there's other people who are saying, no, 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 it's different. It's a different worldview now and, and all the rest of it. Um, but my feeling, my sense is that particularly, um, say, anybody under the age of 50, their entire life has really been in peace and prosperity. They don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know what it feels like um, to be that close to war. My sense is that if we're not really, really careful and we don't fight really, really hard... Uh, to say this is not right, we will not tolerate this, this is a contravention of human rights, this is an abuse of power, this is whatever it might be, uh, that we'll find ourselves in, in incredibly dangerous territory um, because a small number of people felt that it was in their interests to, to, to wage war. Um, so much less optimistic, I think. But if we can, get, if we can do that fight, if we can, if we can fight, then out the other end of it, uh, inevitably we'll come out stronger for it uh, which is, tends to be what happens when you come out the other end of a war. Um, that's a happy note to end on, isn't it, Martin? It's <laughs> a cheerful <laughs> note to end on, indeed. But look, it's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much to all three of you for your time and insights there. So uh, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Kathleen. And thank you, Susie. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Forum Pod, and I had the pleasure of speaking there with Karen Hussey, Kathleen Sigerson and Susie Kerr, all of whom featured at Policy Forum's recent event, Bridging Science, Economics and Policy Silos. Video recordings of their presentations, as well as other panels and speeches at the event, can be found on policyforum.net. You can also find Karen, Kathleen and Susie's articles, all of which are definitely worth a read. Really hope you enjoyed today's discussion as much as we enjoyed making it, but we are really interested in getting your thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. If you enjoyed today's podcast and you're feeling generous, as I always say, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds or so and doing so will be a big help to us in getting the word out about the series. Don't forget you can keep up to date with public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net. We'll be back again soon with another Policy Forum pod. Until then, cheerio.